The Tom Woods Show, episode 2105. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Hey, everybody. I'm giving away three free courses from my Liberty Classroom. One of them is ex-Marxist Michael Rechtenwald teaching you about critical theory so you can understand leftism and fight it better, as well as our course on how Alexander Hamilton screwed up America and the history of the conservative and libertarian movements. Check it out at 3freecourses.com. Hello, everybody. It is your delightful host of The Tom Woods Show, Tom Woods himself. And I'm going to do something that I do only once in a blue moon on The Tom Woods Show. I've done it only a handful of times over the 2,100-odd episodes of the program over the years. Today, I'm going to share with you a sample that I have not shared before, that no one has ever been able to hear before without paying for it, of one of the courses that I created for the Ron Paul curriculum. And in particular, the Ron Paul curriculum is a K-12 self-taught video-based curriculum that you can get at ronpaulhomeschool.com. And if you use ronpaulhomeschool.com specifically, and you click on an order link through there, you get a bunch of bonuses from me. So you might as well, if you're going to ever join the Ron Paul curriculum, join it through ronpaulhomeschool.com because I throw in a lot of stuff that you're not going to get if you just go to the website and get it. So anyway, I did two courses on Western civilization and I did one on government. And in this government course, I start off by talking about, well, first I start off talking about the various natural rights theories that have existed over time to show the evolution of natural rights theory that actually natural rights theory does not go back just to the Enlightenment, but actually it goes very far back. At the very least, it goes back to the high Middle Ages, but we can even show that there is at least the basics of an understanding of it, even in Aristotle, who certainly does not use the language of natural rights, that's for certain. But as Fred Miller showed, even without the language of natural rights, you can see Aristotle nevertheless groping towards something like that. And so Miller has done an interesting reading of Aristotle along those lines. I talk more about that in the Western Civilization course. Anyway, the point is, after I do that, after I establish the richness and length of the natural rights tradition, because presumably governments are either going to uphold or violate natural rights. So you got to start talking about natural rights. Then I, I have a little unit where I talk about some of the most influential modern political philosophers. And I'm going to talk in particular about critics of liberalism. Now, when we say liberalism in this context, we don't mean Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden. We're talking, of course, about so-called classical liberalism that would include John Locke and Frederick Bastiat and John Stuart Mill and people of that sort. That's what liberalism originally meant. And there are critics of that, of course, in the 20th century, plenty of them. Early on, in fact, I think it's either one or two lessons before this one. I think it may be the, the lesson immediately before this one. I talk about John Rawls. John Rawls wrote a book called A Theory of Justice that was very, very influential. And I talk about his ideas. Now, in this particular lesson, I'm going to talk about two other very, very important and influential political philosophers, Thomas Nagel and Ronald Dworkin. But one thing you'll notice is that at the beginning I give you a little recap for a few minutes of what was covered in the previous lesson. So I am going to give you a quick overview of John Rawls, who was covered in the previous lesson. The reason I do that is that you would be amazed at how much better you remember material when you have just a refresher in the next lesson. You have one lesson a day for five days a week, but when you start your next lesson the following day and it starts with a 
three-minute refresher of what you just learned the previous day, it stays in that brain of yours much, much more effectively. So it's a, it's a very helpful pedagogical device. And then on the Friday of every week in the Ron Paul curriculum, we do a review. So the entire lesson is review. The entire lesson is me summarizing the material we covered that week. So yet again, it gets repeated. So again, you don't go to all this trouble of consuming all this material and then you're no better off at the end than when you started. We are really taking a figurative sledgehammer and just pounding it into that brain of yours. That's how this works. That's the format of these Ron Paul curriculum courses. So what you're about to hear is my lesson. I generally would do, my lessons range between 20 and 35 minutes per day, probably averaging around 27 minutes, something like that per day. And then there's some reading per day. And then on Friday, there's a little writing assignment. Because Friday, you don't have any reading to do because it's all review in the lecture. So you can just do a writing assignment. That's the way it all works. So here we go. You can listen to this. And if you decide you'd like this course, because there are 89 other lectures just like this one, there are several ways you can get it. And I'll tell you about that at the very end. So here we go. Hi, everybody. It's Tom Woods. And today we're going to continue our discussion of some modern political philosophers who are critical of the classical liberal approach. And today we're going to talk about Thomas Nagel and Ronald Dworkin. But first, let's review what we covered last time. Last time we talked about John Rawls and his famous thought experiment in which you begin at what he calls the original position behind a veil of ignorance, and you are trying to speculate on what rules you would want society to be organized on, given that you don't know how you're going to fit into that society, if you're going to be male or female, rich or poor, black or white, talented or untalented. And he thinks we are likely to conclude, given that we don't know where we're going to wind up in society, that we would want to sort of hedge against the possibility that we may be the lowest of the low. So maybe we would want to have a principle then that would insure us against that possibility, that maybe I might be the worst off. So let's just say the principle is equality. Equality must be the, the basic principle. And he then develops this into what's called the difference principle, that there should be equality of condition, of material condition, that everybody should have the same amount of money, et cetera. You should have equality, except if inequality benefits the least well-off. And we gave examples of this, because if you have absolute equality and everybody earns the same amount of money and everything else, then a lot of people just aren't going to work very hard, or they're not going to work in some of the really demanding professions, because why would they do so if they get no extra reward for it? They earn just as much as they could get by being a night watchman or whatever, being a cashier somewhere. Why would they go to all the trouble and the education to become doctors if they're going to have their excess money taken away and they'll have the same amount as everybody else? So obviously, Rawls is able to see that would not be good for the poor. So it's okay for doctors to earn somewhat more than the average person because that will encourage them to be doctors and therefore the poor will have doctors. Obviously, a society where the poor have doctors and the doctors have slightly more income than they do or somewhat more income than they do, is better for the poor than a society where everybody's equal but there are no doctors. Now, there are other ways in which inequality can benefit the least well-off, but you see the point. So this is Rawls's difference principle. Equality is our baseline principle, except when inequality benefits the least well-off. So inequalities have to be justified, that you have to be able to justify them in terms of whether or not they help the least well-off. We noted that in Rawls's view, moral desert and luck 
do not play any role whatsoever in any of this. So in other words, whether or not you have a talent, a basketball playing talent, for example, that does not entitle you to more income than somebody else. You don't deserve that talent, so you don't deserve the income. Likewise, whether you happen to be a morally upstanding person or you are a lazy bum, neither one of those entitles you to any more or less than what anybody else gets. He says that the principles of justice, of distributive justice, when we're talking about how to distribute the resources of society, have nothing to do with moral desert or in the sort of infelicitous phrase I've been using, moral deservingness. Now, then we went on and talked about what Rawls had to say about the relationship between countries. And there, he doesn't apply the difference principle. He doesn't say we need to strive for equality between countries. No. He says, well, you know, we got to help them out a little bit, but, you know, at some point, they got to just sink or swim on their own. Whoa, wait a minute. He doesn't say that about individuals. He also doesn't say that lucky countries that have a lot of resources don't deserve those resources, so those should be equally distributed to everybody. He doesn't say that. So he doesn't enforce among countries the principles that he would see enforced among individuals in a country. And this is a glaring contradiction in his thought between his book, A Theory of Justice in the early 70s, to his book, The Law of Peoples, down in the late 1990s. And I think as good an explanation of this as any is the one given by David Gordon, which is that a lot of philosophers might be willing to follow him in his book, A Theory of Justice, but they're not going to follow him if he says, oh, by the way, you actually have to be, you have to help to bring the poorest people in the world earning a dollar a day up to your level. So that's really going to mean that you're going to have to be brought down to their level. No one's going to support that. So therefore, he says, you don't have to support that. You don't have to support that level of equality between countries. You just try to support equality in a country, but don't worry about it between countries. Now, Thomas Nagel is another political philosopher. He's, he's, he's not just a political philosopher. He's a philosopher all around. But Nagel is going to try to justify Rawls's view here and show that he's not just engaged in special pleading. He's not just trying to look for a reason why we don't have to be equal with the poorest countries in the world. He's going to say that it actually makes sense. So what I have here on the slide, I just talked about. So we'll, we'll skip this slide. If you really want to see this slide, you can pause it and read it. So here we go. So Thomas Nagel is going to agree that, yes, I, he agrees with the Rawls difference principle. And he also agrees that it does not apply across countries. It does not mean that Americans have to try to be equal with people living in the poorest country in the world. And he gives a reason for this. He says there, that some groups may have stronger obligations to one another than to strangers. He says, we see this in our daily lives. Like you owe your parents more than you owe a next door neighbor, more than you owe a stranger in a shoe store. So you do have stronger obligations to some people than you do to others. And so he would say that that's basically the underlying reason that we don't have an obligation to elevate every poor country in the world to our material condition, or rather to lower ourselves to the point where we meet them halfway. We're not obligated to that, to do that. And so he says this, he says, as part of a democratic society, he says, we share responsibility for enacting the laws that we're going to live under. We do this together, as a people together. And so we have shared bonds that bind us together. We're involved in this shared project. This shared project creates a kind of a bond among us. 
Now, he says, if there's too much inequality between us, it damages our shared bonds. He says, therefore, we have certain egalitarian obligations to others in our society. But we do not have these obligations toward people in other societies because we do not have these shared bonds with them. We're not involved in a shared project with them, developing laws and building up society. So we don't have the same responsibilities to them as we would to people who are involved in this same shared project with us. Now, a good question to ask would be, where do Nagel's people obtain the right to force others to belong to their social project? So it could be that a bunch of people get together and say, you know what, we have obligations to take wealth from some of us and give it to others of us. If they voluntarily come together and say that, and they're going to enforce that among themselves freely, that's one thing. But what if there were people who said, you know, I don't believe there are such obligations, or at the very least, I should be free to decide what they are and give people as much money or as little money as I choose. This doesn't seem to be allowed for in Nagel's system, but he just leaves a sort of a glaring hole here. How does he justify forcing people to take part in these shared bonds and take part in this decision, how much should we, are we on the hook to provide money for poor people or middle-class people? How does he force them to do it? On what grounds does he force them to take part in this? As I say, if this is a voluntarily agreed to thing and everybody wants to do it, well then fine. But what is the Thomas Nagel philosophical principle according to which you can be forced to take part in this? He doesn't actually say. Hey, everybody, just a quick note from our good friends at CrowdHealth. Do you realize a quarter million people with health insurance went bankrupt last year due to medical costs? Well, thanks to CrowdHealth, our sponsor, you can use the power of community to make healthcare affordable. CrowdHealth isn't health insurance. That's why it works. With insurance, you pay huge premiums for high deductibles, which means on top of the thousands you pay to keep your plan, you end up paying thousands more before insurance kicks in even a cent. CrowdHealth gives you a new way to pay for healthcare. No doctor networks, no huge premiums, no high deductibles, no surprises. You pay one low monthly total to fund your account and get access to the CrowdHealth community. That's less than $200 a month for most people. 100% of your monthly contribution directly funds and reduces the healthcare costs of the community. You'll pay the first $500 of a health event the rest gets submitted to the CrowdHealth community members for funding. And unlike insurance, you're not limited by doctor networks when looking for care. CrowdHealth totally reverses the vicious incentives that got the healthcare system into this mess in the first place. Well, don't let healthcare costs stand between you and your future. Join CrowdHealth today. Right now, you can get your first six months for just $99 per month. That's almost 50% off the normal price and a lot less than a high deductible healthcare plan. Just go to joincrowdhealth.com and use promo code WOODS at sign up. That's joincrowdhealth.com, promo code WOODS. CrowdHealth is not health insurance. It's a totally different way of paying for health care. Terms and conditions may apply. Now, Nagel says that the concern that we should all have for equality comes from looking at the world from an impersonal standpoint. He says, when we look at the world, he says, because right now, if I just look at the world through my own eyes, well, I only have limited cares. I care about my family, my friends, maybe people who live in my town, um, maybe people who play the same sport that I do, whatever. But I have a kind of limited range of people I care about. So, so don't look at the world through your own eyes for a minute. Look at the world through impersonal eyes. 
And he says, from an impersonal standpoint, we realize that our lives don't matter any more than anybody else's. And that we realize when we look impersonally at the world that there is nobody in the world intrinsically more important than anybody else. And you know, we talk a lot about our families. I'm so devoted to my family. But when we look at the world through impersonal eyes, he says, there's nothing special about my family. I care about my family. You care about your family. There's nothing special about any one particular family. So for example, if I decide I want to avoid pain, when I look closely at that, I realize there's an objective reason to avoid pain that would apply to everybody. So when I look at the world impersonally, I realize my pain is no more important than anybody else's pain. So therefore, I have an objective reason to want to alleviate the pain of others. So when I look at the world impersonally, I come to realize that I have an obligation to others because I'm no more important than any of those others. And if I privilege myself by thinking only about myself, then I'm failing to realize this obvious point that I don't matter to the world any more than anybody else does. That's how he derives these ideas. Now, he says, therefore, we do have egalitarian obligations to each other. And we learn this when we look at the world impersonally. We realize that I'm no important than anybody else. So if I want to alleviate pain and discomfort, then I should want to see it alleviated in others. And so I should work toward that as well. So we have obligations to one another. But he says exactly how far those obligations extend is something that we as a political community jointly decide on. He's not going to say, I'm Thomas Nagel, and I say everybody should have exactly equal incomes. He says, no, no, no. What I'm going to tell you is that looking at the world impersonally, you're going to realize that you owe others something, that you're no more important than anybody else, so you should think about others. But I'm not going to tell you exactly how much you owe others. It's up to the political community to decide this. And that includes deciding on how property rights will be arranged. And so that means that just like Rousseau and just like Rawls, Nagel does not believe that property rights are natural rights, that we all just have the right to property because we're human beings. No, you can have property, but that's because we in the community have said it's okay. We in the community decided, okay, we're going to allow people to have property, but then we're going to tell them how much and what they can do with it. He's going to say property rights are conventional. They are not something you're born with, the right to acquire property. No, property is something that we agree on as a society. And so you can't say, hey, this is my property and society can't take any of it from me because it's society that recognizes that you have property. It's society that established your ability to hold property. It's society that recognizes the property in the first place. And without society, there wouldn't be any right to property anyway. It's entirely conventional. That's Nagel's view. So there are two key things we want to get here from Nagel, maybe three. The first is that Rawls's distinction between obligations we have toward people in our own country and obligations that countries have to one another is a legitimate distinction. This is not just Rawls being slippery. And he says the reason is that we have bonds together with each other in our shared political community, and we don't have those same bonds with people elsewhere. And we have greater obligations to people who share these bonds than we do to people who don't. Then he says, we have to believe in equality when we look at the world impersonally, and we see that we're no more important than anybody else. So if we want to help ourselves, we should also see that other people want to be helped. And so there's a demand for equality. But just how far that demand extends, well, that's up to the political society to vote on, to discuss, to decide among themselves 
how much property should be taken from some and given to others, because property rights are not natural. You can't complain in Thomas Nagel's society, hey, what are you doing taking my stuff? He would say, look, no, 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 that's not, you don't have any right to that. We're letting you use it, and we're recognizing that it's your property because we've decided that these will be the property rules, but that's not because you have any right to property. We decided that property seems like a nice system, and we decided that as a society. So as a society, we can change those rules. Now, he doesn't actually show that property rights are conventional and just made up by people and are not natural rights that everybody enjoys. He just sort of declares it. Then we have Ronald Dworkin, who was one of the most influential legal thinkers of the 20th century. And he also has a commitment to equality. He says, each person in a society should be treated with equal respect. Each person is an end in himself and not a means to other people's ends. Nothing to disagree with there from a classical liberal perspective. He says, you're free if you're not violating other people's rights. So again, a classical liberal would say that's fine. So we're not restricting your freedom when we have a law saying you can't commit murder. You're not free to commit murder because committing murder violates other people's rights. You're free as long as you're not violating other people's rights. But it's okay to, in effect, tax people very heavily to promote equality. And you're not violating any rights of theirs because they don't have any right to that excess property in the first place. So we're not wronging somebody when we tax him and take his money to give to somebody else. He had no right to that property in the first place. He wasn't entitled to that in the first place. Property rights are conventional, not natural. Society declares what the property rules are going to be. Remember, Locke's view was that nature declares that when we think about it, we see that this is the only rational way for society to be organized. We see that it follows directly from self-ownership, that people would also be able to own physical goods. And so this is just built into the world. But he would say, no, 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 no. Societies invent property systems. So societies can modify them. Societies can take your stuff because that's society's rule. You don't like it? Move away. He says, no government is legitimate that does not show equal concern for the fate of all those citizens over whom it claims dominion. Okay, but then he said, well, what does equal concern mean? He says, government is a tyranny if a nation's wealth is very unequally distributed as the wealth of even very prosperous nations is. So what Dworkin means by showing equal concern for the fate of all citizens is in effect to make sure they have equal distribution of resources, or at least as close as we can reasonably get to that. So he proposes what he calls his egalitarian fantasy, illustrating his principle of equal resources. He says, let's imagine people on a desert island and that they begin with equal resources. They would participate in an auction. They would use their equal assets to bid on bundles of resources that they want. So they would bid on tools they could use to build things. They would bid for land to grow things on. They would bid for musical instruments, for enjoyment, etc. They would bid for bundles of resources that will allow them to lead their chosen lives. And Dworkin says this distribution of resources would be fair and equal because it passes an envy test. What does he mean by an envy test? He means that nobody will prefer somebody else's bundle of resources to his own because everybody started off from the same position and made free choices. Everybody freely chose the resources he wants. There'd be no reason to envy somebody else's choices. 
He says, now how this would work out today, he can't really say, because obviously we can't bring everybody to a desert island, give them equal resources, have them start bidding, and then send them off into the world. But systematic redistribution of wealth, yes, we do need something like that. That does seem to be called for, he believes. Now, the difficulties of this system are not too, I think, hard to spot. Number one, to make envy into the criterion of justice is to run counter to the whole Western philosophical tradition. Envy is considered a vice. It's considered a sin in Christianity, certainly, but it's considered a a vice generally in, in philosophical systems. But to say that, well, this is a good distribution of resources because no one would be envious of anybody else. Well, whether somebody is envious or not seems like a strange thing. I mean, it's that person's problem if he's envious. Envy is not a good thing. So it seems like a strange criterion to use to determine whether a society's resource allocation is fair. Also, people can be still be envious of each other, even after all their basic needs and then some are cared for. There's no reason people couldn't be envious of each other five minutes after that auction. Maybe they have buyer's remorse. Maybe they say, ah, on second thought, I should have bought what this guy has. Maybe they would be envious. So even Dworkin's scenario doesn't work because he says that we have to have a scenario where no one would be envious of anybody else. But I could easily imagine people being envious 10 seconds later. Oh, darn, why didn't I buy this? And now they're envious of people who did. Then what would happen when people's natural abilities create inequalities? Okay, we start off with equal resources, but I'm better with my resources than you are with yours, so I get more income. How does he justify then taking my stuff? Like, what happens then? Do we all go back to the desert island and start over? Also, he supposes there's just a bunch of goods lying around on the desert island for people to bid on. But who produced them? And why would somebody produce these goods on a desert island if equal distribution is going to occur? What would be the incentive to produce anything if then there's going to be an auction with equal distribution? So there are a lot of unanswered questions here in the Dworkin scenario. So what I wanted to show you in this lesson, or just first I wanted to make you acquainted with a couple of influential philosophers, but I wanted to show you some of the arguments of Nagel, of how he believes we can justify the idea of equality by looking at the world impersonally, and we see that we're no better than anybody else and so on. Now, by the way, it seems to me quite possible that you could do that. You could look with a humane eye at the rest of the world and say, everybody has joys and sorrows just as I do. Everyone has needs just as I do. Everyone has pain to be relieved just as I do. But it doesn't seem to me that you have to then jump to the conclusion that therefore everybody is equally entitled to money and wealth as I am. Maybe I do want to help people, but that's up to me to decide how much I want to help them. It seems like you could reach that conclusion. It doesn't seem like you have to reach any other conclusion or you have to reach any radical equality sort of conclusion. And then the Dworkin case, I thought it was interesting for you to know that the most significant legal thinker really of the 20th century, for better or worse, believed that private property rights were conventional rather than natural. And if that's the case, if society declares what the laws of property will be and and declare what the rights of property will be, then they can modify and cancel them. If rights are not natural, then they can be modified at any time according to whatever blueprint for society some politician may have. And I wanted you to know about his little island example just because that example, like the veil of ignorance and the original position of Rawls, it's just interesting to see the kind of thought experiments that are used 
to try to justify a policy of radical redistribution of wealth and equality to see if they really do hold up or not. All right, everybody, the way I distribute this course is through various means. You can get it directly and conveniently at tomwoodshomeschool.com. There it is, staring in the face at tomwoodshomeschool.com. You can also get it if you join the Ron Paul curriculum and you just take it as one of the courses. If you do that, then you pay to join the curriculum and you can get the course for half off. So that's ronpaulhomeschool.com. You join the curriculum and then when you go to choose your courses, you just choose government 1B, which is what this course is. But if you just want to, you don't want to go to the trouble of joining the curriculum. You don't want to pay for the curriculum. You just want the one course then you can get it at tomwoodshomeschool.com. I also give this course to people who support the show at the gold level and above at supportinglisteners.com. So if you've been saying to yourself, I really should support Old Woods, doggone it, that guy works really hard at what he's doing here and I'd like to support him. Well, at the gold level and above, you get this course as one of the many bonuses you get. So supportinglisteners.com is another way to get it. And then finally, if you become a master member at libertyclassroom.com, my lifetime membership, I throw in the government course as a bonus there. So that's libertyclassroom.com. So if I haven't confused you enough, well, (laughs) you can check it all out. I'll have all the links up for how you can get the Introduction to Government course from Paul Woods. You'll see all the links at tomwoods.com slash 2105. Thanks for listening, everybody. See you tomorrow. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit TomWoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time. Like the sound of The Tom Woods Show? My audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at Podsworth.com.